This evening, I would like to continue the discussion of the understanding of selflessness or egolessness. Because in the teachings of the Buddha and in our practice, it's this insight or understanding which has a tremendously powerful role in transforming our ways viewing the nature of things. It's a radically different way of understanding things. In order to approach the understanding of selflessness, it's necessary to have a very clear awareness of the difference between our concepts about things and the direct experience of things themselves. Because often because of our conditioning, we confuse these two levels. We confuse concepts for the reality of the object. As an example of some of the concepts which are very strongly conditioned in our mind, which are so strongly conditioned that we actually take the concepts to be real as something more than a mental construct, will give you some idea of the power, the influence, the overbearing influence of the conceptual realm in our lives. We're very much entangled in that realm. And it's out of this realm of concept that the sense of self emerges. It's necessary to understand kinds of concepts that are formed in the mind and the degree to which we identify with them and get lost in them. A few simple examples of different kinds of concepts. One could be called the concept of place or of location. Now the idea that the earth is somehow divided into different countries or nations or states or cities. I don't know that you've walked up this road far enough to uh, the boundary line between the town of Barry and the town of Petersham. If you're walking along the road, lifting, moving, placing, all of a sudden there's a post in the ground. And on one side of the post it says Barry, on the other side of the post it says Petersham. It doesn't look any different. <laughs> but in somebody's mind, that line is very important. Know, which, which direction you pay your taxes towards, or whatever. Of course, this particular boundary perhaps doesn't influence our lives so much. But when you stop to consider the force and the intensity of feelings of nationalism, identification with a certain part 
of the earth, a certain part of the globe. And that part being created by boundaries which were constructed in our minds, that don't have any inherent reality to them. story I can't resist telling again. <laughs> I was just, <laughs> should I or shouldn't I? <laughs> but it so well illustrates the, the force of this concept. I, I, it was an article in the New York Times a couple of years ago, and it talked about how there were a group of uh, people in the Sinai Desert the people who lived in the desert. They were very clever. What they did, they knew that Mercedes-Benz automobiles were cheaper in Israel than in Egypt. And so they imported all these Mercedes-Benz, drove them out to the desert on the Israeli side because they couldn't cross the border with them, and they buried them in the sand. And it was just at the time that Israel was withdrawing from the Sinai. You know? so, the, so the cars were buried in the sand, the border moved somehow mysteriously right over the cars, <laughs> and then they dug the cars up in Egypt and they sold it for this large profit. They understood very well the conceptual nature of borders and boundaries, that we make them up. We've created them. And yet, for anybody who's traveled, you know that if you don't pay attention, you don't get the passport and the visa and the stamps and all kinds of stuff. There's a lot of trouble. There's a lot of conflict because of attachment to that concept. We take it to be so real, we've invested so much reality in it. Perhaps one that conditions us even more than the concept of place is the concept of time. We live a good part of our lives conditioned by the thoughts of past and future has a very powerfully conditioning role in our lives. But when we stop to investigate exactly what is the nature of this time, how do we experience past and how do we experience future? What do we find? We're sitting here in the hall, watching the breath rising and falling, rising and falling, and certain thoughts begin to arise, of certain images, memories, remembrances, recollections, the thoughts arising in the mind. What we do is to put this label or concept onto this category of thought. We call it past. And here's where the cleverness of the mind comes in. We take this concept, past, which we put on this category of thought, And through some mental gymnastics, we take this concept past, take it out of our minds, and 
kind of throw it in back of us as if the past actually exists back there from which we're coming as a reality. Whereas in fact, the way we experience it is simply as a thought in the present. That is the only way we ever experience the past, as a thought or an image happening right now. We do the same thing with future. We sit, minding our own business, paying attention to the breath, and all these thoughts start coming, of planning, imagining, fantasizing, projecting. We put this concept, future, onto this category of thought, And then we take this concept and throw it out in front of us as if the future is out there waiting for us, as if the future exists as a reality outside of the thought in the present moment. It's no wonder that we feel burdened or weighed down. Imagine what we're carrying around on our shoulders, not the weight of a simple thought, but the weight of this huge, vast reality of beginningless past and endless future, taking that to be real. And so we live a lot in the past with regret or guilt or attachment. We live a lot in the future with anticipation or anxiety or fear or excitement, forgetting that actually what is happening is a simple thought arising in the present moment. And when we can see that, when we actually experience, not not as an interesting idea, But when we can actually see that intuitively in our own experience, see that that's how we touch, how we experience past, how we experience future, there's this huge burden which is lifted. Because we see that, like it or not, there is always just the present moment's experience and its thoughts, or images, or sensations, or sounds. And now we've constructed, we've constructed the boundaries on the world, we've constructed this concept of time, of past and future. We've created that in our minds through the use of concept. For those of you who would like to explore that in a little deeper way, in addition to the meditation, Marcel Proust wrote a wonderful book called The Remembrance of Things Past. It's about 2,000 pages long, so it's quite a project. The whole book really is an expression of this insight. and He comes to it in the last 50 pages or so. The insight being that the past exists in the present, that that's where it is to be found. And after you've plowed through 2,000 pages, you're ready to believe it. (laughs) 
it's worth looking at that very carefully because we condition ourselves a lot and we condition our relationship to our experience, to other people, through this concept of time, forgetting that it is only a concept, that it's only a useful mental construct, but does not have any essential reality in terms of our experience. There's a concept of place, of time. There's a concept of ownership. We have the idea that we own things. We own a house, or we own a car, we own a piece of land. We own a zafu. (laughs) What does it mean to own a zafu? What does it actually mean? We can sit on it. And we can pick it up and carry it with us. We can throw it. We can hit somebody on the head with it. But what does it mean to own it? What What does that concept actually mean? We're in a certain relationship to things. That's true. But somehow this idea of ownership and possessiveness has become so strong. The Buddha Buddha talked of how we cannot be said to own even this mind and body. Can you say, you're sitting and the pain is in the knee. Okay, pain, go away. This is my body and you can't come. (laughs) <laughs> or can you say with your mind thoughts not allowed <laughs> if we can't be said to own even this that this is just elements following their own laws how can we, how can we be said to actually own possess right? things, things on the outside again it's not to suggest that these concepts are not useful I'm not suggesting that we don't use them and we throw them out. They do have a use. But it's when we take them to be real, when we invest such a strong reality in them, we become so attached to the concept, and we forget what the underlying reality is, that's when we get involved in conflict and struggle. We've all been here now, you know, three days, four days, And most of you have come into the hall and sit and sit pretty much in the same spot. Just imagine how you would feel if you came into the hall and somebody was sitting on your seat. <laughs> it would be traumatic. <laughs> it would. It's amazing how this idea of possessiveness, even into this sanctuary of selflessness, <laughs> Very strong, very strong. Concepts of place, of time, of ownership. Concepts of, concepts of age. Now go up to anybody and ask them how old they are. Most people know. No. <laughs> Unless you've been sitting here long enough. <laughs> then you tend to forget. 25, 35, 50, 
80. And it has a certain use you know, when you get Medicare. And <laughs> but what actually does it mean? You're sitting, you're sitting here. And again, the good old pain in the knee. The pain in the knee comes. How old is that pain? Is that pain 30 or 50 or 70 years old? It may feel like that. But actually, the concept of age has nothing to do with the moment's experience. You know, a thought comes in the mind. How old is the thought? Is the thought 90 years old? Who is 90 years old? Who is 70? Who is 50? It's a concept which we put onto this imaginary self. It's concept put on concept. And then we're told, well, act your age. <laughs> now we get, we get caught in all kinds of conditioning about how we're supposed to be because we're a certain age. Not only age, even gender. When you're sitting and your eyes are closed, are you a man or a woman? No. Is the pain male or female? Is the thought masculine or feminine? Obviously, on certain levels, there are quite apparent differences. On other levels, those differences fall away. We begin to experience a more fundamental unity. But we get so attached to certain levels, and we get so identified with certain levels, and we live our lives imprisoned by the identification with those particular concepts. Concepts of place, of time, of ownership, of age, of gender. Concepts of self-image. We all have many self-images, ideas about ourselves, the kind of person we are. And it can be worldly self-images, it can be spiritual self-images. I'm so humble. I'm a meditator. I can always go around being very humble. <laughs> That's an image. That has nothing to do with anything. It's a concept. Or, you know, I'm a great hero, or I'm a coward, or I'm brilliant, or I'm stupid, or I'm... You know, all these, all these images we create for ourselves. Another story. Many of you have heard it. Must tell it. <laughs> when I was leaving India, <laughs> maybe I don't have to tell it. <laughs> I think I won't. <laughs> Concepts of place, of time, of ownership. <laughs> the last concept 
it's not the last one, but the last one to talk about tonight, is the concept of self, the sense of I, the sense of me. It's a construct in our minds. We have created this sense of self through identification with various parts of the process. There are thoughts, there are feelings, there are sensations. The Buddha gave a discourse called the All. And he described the nature of reality, how we experience things. He described it in six phrases. It's a very succinct discourse. He said that there's the I, invisible objects, the knowing of it, the ear and sound and the knowing, nose and smell, tongue and taste, body and sensation, mind and mind objects, thoughts and feelings and emotions, and the knowing of them. Consciousness and object arising and passing. The consciousness is arising and passing away, the object is arising and passing away. But we identify We identify with certain sensations, my pain. We identify with certain emotions, certain thoughts. We add the my, we add the the I to it. And in that addition, we create and, and deeply condition the sense of self, of ego, of separateness. Kala Rinpoche was one of the great Tibetan meditation masters had a very beautiful teaching about this. He said that we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, and we are that reality. And when we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in the world of concepts. There is a reality, and we are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. Not identifying with any part. Being nothing, we are everything. When we don't identify with a certain part, We become the totality of experience because we don't limit ourselves, we don't imprison ourselves in a narrow identification. We become the nature of things. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing, and being nothing, we are everything. That is all. So what is this reality which we are, as opposed to the concepts, the mental constructs? It's been described in many different ways. In the Buddhist psychology, which is called the Abhidhamma, it's one part of the Buddhist teachings, he describes the nature of reality four aspects, four aspects of experience. And although we use concepts to talk about it, 
each of these areas can be experienced directly free of concept. And so the words are pointing to a direct experience. So the first, see if you can, it becomes a little... Um, I'd like to go through this, the explanation of it. See if you can follow it, because it's a model, it's a very clear model for understanding the selfless nature of this mind and body. The first level of reality that can be experienced directly are the material elements, the physical elements. Hardness, softness, heat, cold, movement, vibration, pressure. There are certain basic elements which can, be, which can be felt, which can be touched. And there are certain derivative elements like color and odor and taste. So when you go outside and you look around, you know, and somebody asks you, what do you see? I see a building, I see a road, I see cars, I see men, I see women. We don't see any of that. All of those are concepts. What the eye sees is color and form and light and shadow. And immediately, the mind puts a name on it. And we think we see the name. The eye doesn't see names. The mind thinks names. And they're two different processes. Why is it important to distinguish those processes? And it's crucial in terms of our deepening understanding. It's important, its importance lies in a certain characteristic of concepts, which is that the concept, the name of things, remains the same. We use the same word. I'm a man today, I'm a man tomorrow, this is a hand, the hand last year, now, be a hand next year. The word hand remains the same. The word man remains the same. The name Joseph remains the same. And so to the extent that we live in the world of concepts, we begin to think that things are lasting. Even if not eternally, for some period of time we're deluded into thinking that things are lasting. But when we come to the experience of what the name is pointing to, when we actually experience hand, the sensation that can be felt, we see that there is nothing which lasts even for two seconds. When our perception is refined enough, we see that this physical process that's going on, whether it's our own bodies or the material world outside, that it's in a constant, momentary state of change, that there is nothing substantial, there's nothing static, even for two instants. But we usually don't see that. We don't see it for two reasons, because our perception is not refined enough, and because we're enmeshed and entangled and identified with the concept. That's the level that we usually operate on. And so we don't see 
how things are changing in each moment. To the degree that we don't see it, we get attached. To the degree that we get attached, we suffer. So the physical elements, the material elements, the first area of reality that we can touch, experience directly. The second is consciousness itself. And it gets very interesting in the practice when we begin to become mindful of the knowing of the object. In each moment, there's an object and the knowing of it. There's a sensation, which is just the physical element, and the knowing of it. There's a sound and the knowing of it. Smell and the knowing of it. This knowing is what we call consciousness. And it's important to begin to observe, to experience directly, the nature of this consciousness, because if we don't, even when we can begin to appreciate the fact that the material elements are all changing, it's easy to settle back into an identification with the knower, the witness, the observer. Well, that's who I am. That doesn't change. There's one knower who's knowing all of these different things. That's a delusion. It's an illusion. And as our practice deepens, as we observe the consciousness, the knowing an object arising and passing moment to moment to moment, it's a succession of mind moments. We see that we can't identify with consciousness either. Because in each moment, it's arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing. There's nothing there that we could hold on to and claim, yes, this is who I am. This remains the same. It also is in process. There's the material elements, there's consciousness arising and passing. The third, the third area of experience that we can experience directly and which we do a lot in our practice, is a whole group of mental phenomena which are called mental factors or mental qualities. To explain what they are, in every moment, consciousness, which is knowing, is arising with an object, the knowing of sound, the knowing of sight. The knowing itself is pure. There's no defilement, there's no problem in the pure knowing. But along with this consciousness arising with an object, there arises in different combinations whole groups of mental factors, mental qualities, which color that moment of consciousness. So, for example, suppose there's a moment of hearing. There's consciousness, there's the sound, which is material. Suppose in that moment of consciousness, the greed factor is present. Greed is a mental factor. It's a quality of mind. It has the function to stick to the object. It's like glue. It makes everything very sticky. That's the function of greed, to grasp, to cling. Greed is not self. It's not I. It's not mine. It doesn't belong to anybody. It's simply a factor which arises because of certain conditions 
it colors consciousness in that moment, and then it passes away. Anger or hatred is a mental factor. It arises, its function is to condemn, to strike against, aversion. That's the function of that factor, of that element. Anger is not I, it's not self, it's not mine, it doesn't belong to anybody. It just arises because of certain conditions, colors things a certain way, passes away. Generosity, love, wisdom are all mental factors. Generosity has the factor, has the quality of letting go. Wisdom has the factor of illuminating, as if one turns on a light in a dark room. There's no one who is generous, no one who is loving, no one who is wise. It's just consciousness arising in a moment, colored by these different factors or qualities. So then people ask, very often, well, who's being mindful? You know, what am I doing here? And who's making the effort? And who's trying to concentrate? Effort, mindfulness, concentration are all mental factors. Concentration has the function of keeping the mind steady. Mindfulness has the function of noticing what the object is. So what we are is this combination of consciousness, material elements, mental factors, like arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing. There's no self behind it to whom it's happening. Rather, what we are is this process of changing elements. Another question then that people ask, how did the sense of self then becomes so strong. And because you go up to anybody and say, do you exist? <laughs> oh, almost everybody will say yes. <laughs> There's a very strong sense of separate self, separate I, separate me. It's a very deeply conditioned pattern in the mind. Where does it come from? It comes from the working of another mental factor. This factor has a very appropriate name. It's called wrong view. <laughs> and wrong view has a very particular function. Wrong view, when that factor arises in a moment of consciousness, its function is to identify either with the object or with the knowing. That's the factor which claims things as being mine. So when a thought comes, and we identify with it as my thought, or I'm thinking. That's the working of wrong view. One of the powers of mindfulness, and people often don't appreciate how potent and powerful a force it is in the purification of our minds, but one of the powers of it is that mindfulness and wrong view never coexist. So that in every moment of mindfulness, mindfulness means noticing the object without identifying with it. Just noticing, seeing it, feeling it as it is, without adding anything extra. 
And so in every moment of mindfulness, we are deconditioning the power of wrong view. Sometimes people have a misplaced idea of what spiritual practice is about in the sense that often it's taken to be a getting rid of the self, destroying the ego. That's misguided in the sense that it's not there in the first place. And so what we have to do not is to destroy the ego, or to kind of beat the self into submission. Rather, we have to stop creating it in each moment. And the way we stop creating it is through the power of attention, of mindfulness, of awareness. So we can settle back and become this process of changing experience without adding the concept, adding that mental construct of I and me and mind to it. There's the material elements, this consciousness, there are all these mental factors. This is the, these are the elements of this constellation. And just like the stars of the Big Dipper, it's a certain constellation, a certain pattern. The Big Dipper is a concept. The material elements, the moments of consciousness, the mental factors are the stars of the constellation. There's a fourth reality which can be touched directly. And this is perhaps the most difficult one to talk about. It's the unconditioned, the unborn, the unformed. All of these other elements of reality are conditioned. They arise because of causes. The physical elements, consciousness, mental factors, are all caused by certain conditions. There's the possibility of opening to the uncaused, the unborn. Because anything which is born must also die. Anything which arises must also pass away. So anything in the conditioned realm, by its nature, is insubstantial, insecure, impermanent. Because in its nature, it's arising and vanishing. There is another domain which is unconditioned, uncaused, unformed. And when the mind reaches, we can bring this mind into a perfect balance out of that balance, this intuitive opening to the unborn, to Nibbana, to the unconditioned, can take place. There's tremendous power in that moment. Because the power of experiencing the unconditioned lies in its function and ability to uproot certain defilements, meaning unwholesome mental factors, from the stream of consciousness so they don't arise again. It's possible in the course of our practice to push aside the unskillful factors, 
But it's in that moment of experiencing the unconditioned that those unskillful factors are uprooted. And so there's a tremendous transformation that takes place in that moment. It's like a lightning bolt uprooting a tree. So you can see our practice as being the cultivation of those factors of mind. The Buddha pointed out that there are seven factors of enlightenment, seven mental factors, which bring about that balance. Mindfulness and investigation and energy and interest and calm and concentration and equanimity. They're all factors of mind which contribute to the balance, the perfect poise And it's out of that poise that we can open. In every moment of mindfulness, we are cultivating that balance. And that's why the encouragement, the strong encouragement, that we not neglect a single moment. That when we're doing intensive practice in this way, the opportunity to balance the mind, to refine that equilibrium, is so strong. Every moment is equal. Sitting in the hall is no more important than being in the dining room or going to the bathroom in terms of the quality of our awareness. Can we use every moment to develop that strong attention, that strong mindfulness? One of the great philosophic books, Western philosophy, Plato's Republic, uses a very wonderful image of the cave, the parable of the cave. And he describes how people are sitting in the cave, facing the back wall, and they're chained in the cave in such a way that they can't turn around towards the entrance. So they're chained facing the back wall of the cave. Behind them is a fire and a procession of figures which walks by, engaged in all the activities of life. Because of the fire, this procession of figures cast shadows on the wall. And because that's all these people have ever seen, they take the shadows to be the reality. That's their world. Sometimes it happens that one of these people manages to loosen the chains. And they turn around and they say, oh, there's a fire, there are these figures, those are only shadows. They see what causes the shadows. They see the cause, the reality behind the concept. And with, with greater effort, they're able to cut the chains completely, go out of the cave into sunlight and into freedom. What we're doing in our practice is very analogous to that parable. First, we go from the level of concept to the direct experience of what's happening. Then we go from the direct experience of what's happening to the unconditioned.
there's tremendous possibility for the transformation of the mind. But it takes a very strong effort and a very strong determination. Do you have any questions, please? <laughs> it's always a dangerous question to ask. In the, in the moment, right? um, and this is just for you to observe, which I think that you can, you can see the moment's experience arising and passing away. Right? Thoughts arise and pass away. We're always just in a particular moment. Right? But we all have that experience. And the thoughts come and go, and sounds come and go, and sensations come and go. There is also a memory of that. So it's, it's quite pragmatic in terms of, of how we actually experience it, and I think it's an experience common to all of us. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, it's getting into the realm of the philosophical, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to uh, I, don't want, I don't want to engage on that level because I don't have enough expertise in that in terms of our pragmatic experience of what we actually experience in the moment, we can see that, for example, you're sitting and there's a thought of you know, a movie you saw or a person you were with before you came here, that that is a thought right now. That that person does not actually exist back there. That's not our experience of it. One of the, something I mentioned in one of the groups, one of the teachings of uh, Munindra, which I found very helpful, and it has to do mm, both with this idea of time and also with the mm, concepts of people and persons. He said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. The thought of your husband or wife or children is not your wife and children. It's just a thought. But we get lost in that thought. And how often you know, do we sit here or walking around in our lives lost in a mind-created world, right, which may be a memory and may be an anticipation, Forgetting that what is happening is simply that thought or that image. And we get all embroiled in it. 
and reactive and caught and identified. Forgetting actually what it is. And so it's in that sense that past and future are experienced in the moment. Okay, if, <laughs> the oldies among you will have to bear with this. <laughs> it is a good story. <laughs> when you've been there for a certain period, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> when you've lived there for a certain period of time, you have to get a tax form in order to be able to leave the country, to prove that you don't owe them any money. So I went to the office to get my tax clearance. And I go in and I ask for the form. And the man behind the desk says, please wait. Okay, I've been in India a long time, so I expected that. Sit down, rising, falling, rising, falling, half an hour, 45 minutes. Go up to him, I say, what am I waiting for? Says, well, the man with the form isn't here right now. Okay, go back, rising, falling, getting some brilliant meditation in. Another half hour, 45 minutes goes by. You know, you know how creative the mind can get in sitting. So I have a brainstorm. I go up to the man again and I say, well, where are the forms? And he says, in the cabinet behind the desk. Why don't you give me a form? It's locked. Okay, go back, <laughs> rise and fall in. <laughs> Hours are going by. Another brainstorm. Go up to him again and say, well, where's the key? <laughs> Some of you might have thought of that quicker, but it took me a while. <laughs> he says, it's in the desk. So I look at him. <laughs> and I say, well, why don't you take the key open the cabinet and give me a form. And he looked at me totally straight and he said, it's not my job. <laughs> concept. <laughs> That's a concept story. Right? The way we identify with roles. That's an extreme case, but we all do it. You know, and it's very interesting and insightful to begin to and see the roles that we identify with. Teacher, student, parent, child, employer, employee, husband, wife. There are countless roles. And to the degree that we identify with them, we get imprisoned. And then we wonder why we feel confined. Whether it's the washing of the skin or whatever, 
es nicht mir äh, gesagt, ja. Did you hear the question in the back? It had to do with, I'll, I'll paraphrase it, and in the answer hopefully elaborate on it. It had to do with the relationship of constant, the factors of concentration and mindfulness. Concentration being that steadiness of mind, mindfulness being the factor which notices what the object is. Whether if in a particular moment we are being mindful, whether that's enough, whether that serves the purpose, why there's, a, why there's an emphasis on concentration, is it necessary, and what, what purpose does it serve? So that, that covers the main points. Okay. I'll, um, I want to answer this from a few different perspectives because it's a really important question. that from different, from different angles. The first thing is that mindfulness is sufficient. That if we can be mindful in each moment, it is sufficient because mindfulness has the power to bring all the other factors of enlightenment present. It's like a magnet. So when mindfulness is there, it will attract, it will draw, it will draw the factors of concentration, the factors, all the ones that I mentioned, of, of interest, of calm, of, of equanimity, of concentration. And so that really what we're doing is cultivating that factor of mindfulness. Okay, that's one part. In sitting this last summer with Upandita, um, it was a very powerful experience. 
And in one of the interviews, he said something to me, which very much addresses this question and changed my way of understanding what was being developed. I'll, I'll try to just paraphrase what went on in the interview. He had been emphasizing coming back to the rising falling. Right? You note other objects and you come back to the rising falling. So I went in one day, and, and as I was doing that, I began, as I was, as I was focusing more on the rising falling, coming back to it, began to experience very intense sensations in the body. So I went into the interview and I was reporting this. And I reported it by saying the increased concentration on the breath is causing all of this, you know, the intensity of sensation. And this is where he made a, a comment that really turned my understanding around. He said that it's not the concentration factor. That's not the key element. But the key element in that is the effort factor. That it's the increase in cultivation of the effort factor which is intensifying everything. And so the whole emphasis for me in my understanding of what I was doing changed from that concept that I have to concentrate, I have to develop the concentration in order to you know, get it all going. It just changed and I saw that it wasn't that factor that was doing it, that it was the effort. It was the effort factor. And so then everything, the whole practice began to make more sense to me. So that in coming back to the rise and falling, it's not to think of it in terms of deepening concentration. That's not the purpose of it. It's the cultivation of effort. It takes an effort to come back. That effort creates energy. And it's the build-up of energy in the whole system. It's, it's the mind-body energy field that has to grow in momentum and get very strong in order to penetrate through the deeper levels. And so a lot of what we're doing here, and a lot of the things which people don't like doing, like coming back, like mental noting. The mental noting is an effort. It takes effort to do it. That's exactly its value. Because effort creates energy. See, we usually think of it in exactly the opposite way. We think usually that we need energy to make effort. And it's just the reverse. It's the making of effort that creates energy. And so in every moment, the effort to be mindful the effort to notice, the effort to bring the mind back, the effort in the mental noting, the effort to be precise. What is happening is this build-up of momentum and energy, and that's the force that gives the power in the practice. It made it a lot simpler for me when I understood that, because then I didn't get frustrated in terms of, well, how concentrated am I? And I'm, I'm not concentrated enough, and you know, all that judging and comparison and getting tight, as you say. It was easier to drop back into a very present space, you know, okay, just make the effort. Make the effort to come back. Make the effort to note. When I understood what it was doing.
Does that make sense to you? you, Because it was a very important shift. I have a question about mindfulness. Here in um, retreat, it's focusing on two things, on breath and on walking. Um, And everything else. <laughs> I feel as though if I were truly, I'm, I'm making some discrimination. I'm being mindful about certain things. I mean, it's not just what's happening. Mm-hmm. I'm stepping. I'm seeing. I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. There's, mm-hmm. You know, the stimuli are, yeah. are um, right. Yeah. I could be schizophrenic if I left them all and, and was mindful. And all. I, I, I don't. I have no yeah. conception that I can do that. Yeah. So how is it that I mindfully choose what to be mindful about? Is there a philosophy that that It's very simple. Very simple. (laughs) Be with what's predominant. It's true that there's a lot of things going on. As a general guideline in the practice, focus your mindfulness on the predominant object. And generally that's easy to do because the mind will be drawn to what's predominant. Is that what you're about? Like cultivating one's ability to be mindful, instinctively, like an intuitional relationship with what's appropriate. Yeah, yes, yes. It's like, I know that I mentioned this in the whole group, but it's like practicing, it's learning any skill. You You want to play the piano, or you want to learn to play tennis, or ski, or whatever. In the beginning, it's awkward. And you kind of don't know what to do and where to move and how to... But as you develop it, as you develop that skill, it becomes very fluid. And and it becomes quite effortless. Mindfulness is exactly the same way. It's a skill. It's a skill in the mind. And in the beginning, as we're trying to figure it out, it's awkward. It's it's all these things that you mentioned. Well, where should I put my attention? But as it gets stronger, it starts working by itself. And the effort really becomes effortless. So it, it gets very rhythmic and very fluid. I would also think of, of that um, might work in You can't mind, uh, in addition to mindfulness not acting along with wrong view, mindfulness is a factor that does not coexist with the unwholesome factors. Because what mindfulness means is noticing the object without grasping at it, which means without greed, without condemning it, which means without hatred, without forgetting, which means without delusion. And so it's a tremendously purifying force in the mind. Those are concepts also 
generosity, etc. And they can't be located anywhere in our experience. They're only generalizations about tendencies in people's behavior. Right. But they are spoken of as if they were actual stimuli right. Right. or physical forces which have an effect. Right. And therefore they seem the use of them seems inconsistent <coughs> I, I understand. with the rest and in fact almost harmful because they imply they they strengthen the idea that there are that there's a fixed self or fixed attributes. It's true that on our usual sort of level of perception, the word generosity or the word love or wisdom is something of an abstraction. And so in that sense, what you're saying, it's just a concept, just like all the other concepts. In the way that I was using it, I was referring much more minutely to very specific, very specific qualities or characteristics arising in the mind in relationship to a specific object. So, for example, when we use the word greed, on the general sense, we say somebody's greedy, that's an abstraction. It's not the way I was using it. I was using it much more technically to mean that factor or that quality arising in a particular moment in which the relationship to the object is one of grasping. And that can be experienced very directly. We can see in our mind that grasping quality. Generosity, those mental factors which I mentioned, in terms of our practice ought to be understood not as particularly personality abstractions, but rather qualities of relationship to a particular moment's experience. And that can be, that can be seen directly. In other words, they are experiences. Right, right. They are the experiences of how the consciousness is relating to a particular object. So there's a consciousness of a sound. In that moment of hearing, is there a grasping? Is there a holding? Is there an aversion? That, that's what these mental factors mean. And you see, as you sit and you pay attention to different objects, you see that there's a wide fluctuation of relationships to those objects. Sometimes the mind is grasping, sometimes it's pushing away, sometimes it's irritated, sometimes it's loving. All of those qualities are the qualities of... Maybe the better word, or maybe, maybe it wasn't, or Felipe it was, would be mental tendencies rather than factors, because factors sound like a fixed number, rather than uh -huh. an activity. Fine. Use the Pali word, jetasika. <laughs> okay, one last question. Um, do we think uh, in the 
lack of solidity of the cell over time. Um, what I wonder about is how we can uh, develop a sense of commitment uh, to another person, or mm-hmm. an ideal, or a path, mm-hmm. without, without weakening the cell. Mm-hmm. It's a really important question because we often confuse what commitment means and what attachment means. You know, and for example, with relationships, we, we often take commitment to mean attachment or holding on or possessiveness. And there's a possibility of commitment, which means an enduring quality of mind in a particular direction or in a particular relationship, but without any, uh, without any effort to, to fix or to make static what happens. So, for example, we'll take our, just our sitting practice as an example. A commitment to a practice means that there's an enduring quality in a certain path, in a certain, in a certain direction. It doesn't mean that we have a fixed idea of what should happen. Because if we sat and we were attached to our sitting being a certain way, good luck. Right? Because it's just not like that. Things are always changing. But we can have the framework, we can have that commitment, which allows us to be with all the changes and still stay directed. And it's the same thing in our relationships with people. If we try to be possessive and attached, you stay this way. You know how much conflict that causes when we don't allow for the process of change to be taking place. But there can be a commitment to that process, to the process of change. And it can be done without any attachment, without any grasping. So I think, I think that it's important to realize the need for commitment in many aspects of our lives. In order, in, in order really to do anything, we have to channel our energy in a particular way. And it can be done without grasping. I think if you have more questions, maybe you can come up. Um, the rest of you can walk. An announcement... Uh, Tonight is a wonderful concept night. (laughs) And so to celebrate this concept, (laughs) uh, you might have noticed the uh, schedule on the board. It would be nice if you all joined in that. If you'd like to, you're, you're... cordially invited <laughs> to s- surprise tape. <laughs> it's, a, it's a surprise tape, and there will be some um, special New Year refreshments as an incentive to make the midnight sitting. <laughs> we know what works. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thank you. 
Right, right. I said mindfulness has the... None of these factors operate singly. They, they arise in different combinations. And so when there's mindfulness, there are a lot of other wholesome factors which arise at the same time. I still don't see the difference between love and mindfulness, though. In your experience, do you see it? Like you're getting the, the theory of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Forget the theory. <laughs> because we, you know what the difference is. Yeah. Mindfulness has a particular flavor to it. Yeah, it's much more neutral. Yeah. Certainly much right. more neutral. Right. Yeah. That, that factor of love has, a, has its own flavor. Yeah. Yeah. once with like um, I was living on a farm and had uh, sold a lot of fruit and vegetables at the, mm-hmm. at the co-op and we'd buy cans of them. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was a kind of a sacrifice to do that. And I had a friend who was a Sufi came over to use my chainsaw the first day I had it. Went out to the tree by the road and started cutting hay and nail on it. I broke the chain. He came back and uh, and I was physically upset. And he, and he said, well, you see, just as the sun comes up, it goes down to the west. And then So I was thinking that the humorous application of that teaching is something. Yeah. The, it, the point is, there is an, a good point in that story. There's a danger, in the same way that we can kind of get caught in the con- identification with the concept, it's also possible to, to use kind of the spiritual jargon as a rationalization when we're not really in that place. And I mean, I don't know in that particular situation, but often, you know, oh well, you know, there's, there's no self, no ownership, sorry. <laughs> that, that is not. That's not truly what this is about. In the Christian teachings, there's the notion of stewardship rather than ownership. Yeah, that's that's a a nice way of putting it. I mean, there is a certain responsibility that we have, and and as I said, these concepts have uses. I'm I'm not suggesting that they get thrown out. Uh, But to the degree that, well, a similar story when when I was in India, mostly things were were very safe and I didn't have many things stolen. One thing that uh, was taken was a camera. And I had been doing a lot of intensive practice and then one day the camera was gone. And I just went through this space of thinking, I'm supposed to be upset. Because this was a good camera and it's gone. But I saw that it was gone anyway. I mean, it wasn't going to come back. And the upsetness or non-upsetness was totally up to how I related to it. Mm-hmm. And so we just have this choice. Do I want to suffer in addition to losing the camera? And it really comes to the degree that there was a strong sense of that was my camera. So then I would have suffered more. Mm-hmm. Uh, could I ask you, um, 
I think the mind states, for example, of anger and greed and all these heavy emotions, <clears throat> they have a, a taste and a flavor. But when it comes to judgments, I don't find any flavor there. Even the judging one? Ju well, judging, I mean, I'm constantly judging. Yeah. Well, there's you a flavor. Um, You'll see that part of the flavor of judging, for the most part, there's, there's generally aversion in it. Often. Aversion or comparison or competition. Right, right, or, right. But somehow that's an, an idea rather than a, um, okay. a depth feel the, the of, next of, time, a, oh of yeah. a connection. The next time the judging arises in the mind, just get a sense, if you can be mindful of it as it's arising, sort of feel it here. Just see what the feeling of it. See the feeling that's associated with that judgment in the mind. Because we are experiencing it as a thought. And there's certain thoughts going through them. I know that person isn't walking slowly enough. And, uh, whatever. But along with that <laughs> thought, there's a certain... I know, I experienced. There's a, a tightness. You know, it's just like there's a kind of contraction around the thought because it's a separation. It's like just going along, going along. And then it's like everything gets tight. And it's just see what's there along with the thought. And all judgments is a tightening. That's been my experience. You might find some other manifestation, but I think you'll find something. Yeah, I, I, of course I always find something, but I find that it's also um, a mind thing rather than a physical yeah, thing. Well, well, the judgment is predominantly a thought in the mind. And so that's, that's how you may be predominantly experiencing it. But I think that I think you'll find that thought, for the most part, when we're identified with it, has quite a physical effect. When we're not identified with it, then the judgment can come and go, it's no problem. If you're walking along, you know, oh, that person's not mindful. But you're really mindful of that thought. There's no, it's just the thought comes and goes and there's no, there's no disturbance. And so it's really a question of how mindful, how identified, how mindful or identified we are with it. It seems like then it becomes an observation. Yeah. And you can observe that something's yeah. not being Then mindful. it's not a judgment not anymore. A judgment. Yeah. Well, yeah. The term of the poly or whatnot, so I think that's incredible arrogance. Yeah, why would you want to? But in <laughs> determining that someone's being mindful or not, we're doing exactly that. Yeah, absolutely. That's why the judgment is useless. I'm not suggesting that one does that. I'm suggesting that it happens. That these thoughts may happen in the mind. You know, and to the degree that we take them seriously or identify with them, we're suffering. But um, mental motive. Could you say a few more words on that? I guess I thought of it as an aid concentration and I understand it there but could you say something more in relationship to the benefit of the effort of it? It is an aid in being mindful because it draws the mind to the object but in some way even more importantly the effort that's needed to do it creates more energy in the system 
And you will see, if, if you keep making that effort, you'll feel the whole... So even if we have a concentration on something, right. in our hour... Right, it's helpful to... because it adds that extra... <coughs> and, and as I said, the, the practice deepens when the energy builds up and the energy momentum, because it takes a strong concentrated <coughs> power to penetrate the different levels. It's sort of like blowing up a balloon. You know, you have to keep putting air in, and it blows and blows and blows. <coughs> and sometimes it's uncomfortable as the balloon expands. You know, it's like stretching. And that's why the effort that we make, it stretches us. And sometimes we don't like the feeling of it, because it's, it's expanding, it's expanding us. But the idea is to keep that going. So even when it gets a little uncomfortable, and the tendency is to leak out some air, right? to leak out the energy, to get back to a more comfortable, familiar realm. That's a big hindrance in practice. You want to watch the energy leaks, because you put in all this effort to build it up, and then you, you let it out. You build it up, and you let it out. It's a long process. But if you keep it, if you keep it building, then... Yeah, but uh, you see that it does. And it's not the concept that you're standing on. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> okay. Joseph, that, that relates to <laughs> that relates to, to something that I was going to ask, which is we've been dealing so much with the the pain and how to deal with negative things that finally. I had a I had a good experience. <laughs> Started getting a little mindful for a while, <laughs> but then I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> like, how do you distinguish more between, I guess, the attachment and, or commitment to mindfulness? In other words, when you are starting to be mindful for a while, how can you be committed to it rather than attached to it at the same time? Um. Actually, that can happen at certain times when many of the factors of enlightenment get very strong. And so there's a stage in practice where those very factors are called uh, defilements of insight. Not, not because they are in themselves, but because the mind gets attached to them. And so what's necessary is to simply make them the object of awareness. And so you become aware, you become mindful that the mindfulness is strong. You become mindful that the concentration is strong. And in that, there's no identification with it, and the process goes on. So it's really to become aware of that as a mind state, in the same way you'd become aware of anger or desire. <laughs> Go walk. <laughs> Standing up mindfully. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.